Well, I'm so glad uh, that we are beginning with this topic, which is simply Jesus, entitled Jesus, and that is uh, what we will be thinking about, who we will be thinking about, uh, I hope, for the rest of this evening. And it is entirely appropriate that we should begin with him, who is the center of our faith and of our life. In the West these days, um, we find very often in society generally that there is a kind of vestigial um, memory of Jesus. Uh, people know something about him, a little maybe of what he has said. Uh, it is fading, I suppose, I have to say, but it is still there. George Carey, who had something to do with the city at one time, um, tells the story of uh, a man he encountered on a train, and I suppose because George was wearing a dog collar, uh, this man said to him how much he admired Jesus the man. And so George, uh, after listening to this for a while, said, well, yes, but, you know, we believe he's more than a man, that uh, he is uh, God incarnate. Uh, at that, the man drew himself up and rather stiffly said, there we must beg to differ, and got off the train. Um, well, I said to George, I hope the train had stopped when he <laughs> got off it. Uh, but it shows that there is this kind of respect for Jesus still in the culture around. I once um, drew a ballot in the House of Lords to lead a debate, and uh, the, the title of it was something like Religion in Society. Uh, but the clerks warned me. They said, the person who's put himself down to speak immediately after you, Bishop, is our leading atheist. Um, and he will try to negate, more or less, everything you say about religion. And, and that is, in fact, what he did uh, in the debate. But then, towards the end of his speech, he, as it were, delivered himself into my hands, because he said, when I need to make a decision, I go to the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> and... Um, those who are leading a debate have the right, of course, to wind up at the end. And in my winding up, I said, well, why just the Sermon on the Mount? Why not everything else uh, that Jesus said or did? Of course, I didn't get an answer. Uh, Philip Pullman, uh, in his book, The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ, that's the title of the book, once again betrays this sort of affection of this memory of Jesus, but also a great reluctance to take on board what the church teaches about him as to who he is. Well, uh, in Islam, uh, things are rather different because uh, in the Quran itself, the interest that the Quran has uh, in Jesus is what you might call dogmatic, theological who he is and who he is not, both in equal measure. So he is prophet and messenger to whom a book has been given. Uh, he is word and spirit of God. Uh, he is born of a virgin. He um, performs many miracles, etc. Uh, he is called Messiah again and again without uh, that uh, term being unpacked in any way. Uh, but then the Quran is, of course, concerned to deny that he's son of God, that he was crucified, uh, and that he is God incarnate. So the interest is theological, if you like. 
But in the traditions of the Prophet of Islam, uh, the interest shifts from being theological to being eschatological. So it is about what will happen when Jesus returns and how he will establish justice and peace. Uh, he will break down all the crosses uh, and stop people eating pork um, and make them good Muslims, etc. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, and it's all very precise how this is going to happen. Uh, but then, uh, in the Islamic mystical tradition, Jesus is taken as the ascetic par excellence, the one who has given up everything for God. And uh, the cross, which is, of course, denied officially in Islam as ever happening, becomes the central symbol of Jesus' willingness to suffer for God's sake. It's all very paradoxical, but uh, that is uh, quite important in Sufism. In Hinduism, uh, on the other hand, well, there are several phases in Hinduism about uh, their assessment of Jesus, uh, but generally uh, people regard him as a guru, as a such guru, as the guru of truth. Um, and many people will find uh, in their devotional life some place for Jesus. Uh, if not a unique place. I mean, that, the, the issue with Hinduism is about the uniqueness of Jesus. Uh, with Judaism, uh, we find uh, a very dynamic situation of reassessment going on from the early polemic of the Toledot Yeshua um, and the cursing of the Minim, um, and the Talmud's declaration that Jesus was uh, put to death because he deceived the people, all of that, we are now moving to a more positive reassessment. Uh, so uh, my very senior and very respected old friend Geza Vermish in the University of Oxford was uh, responsible for initiating some of this reassessment. Uh, and he uh, treated Jesus as one of the Hasidim one of the pious Jews uh, whose duty it was to go around doing good. Well, that's one thing. Another younger friend of mine who was at university with me, uh, Dan, Rabbi Dan Cohn Sherbach, uh, regards Jesus as a prophet of the Old Testament type. Well, I mean, that's something that Christians wouldn't deny, of course. Um, and then you have uh, Pinhas Lapide, Rabbi Pinhas Lapide, who is willing to recognize even the resurrection because from his Jewish point of view, he doesn't see why a pious Jew who has suffered for God's sake should not be raised by God. He says that is promised in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, there's a very interesting dialogue between uh, Rabbi Lapide and Hans Kuhn, uh, which you may want to see sometime. It's called Brother or Lord. Obviously, Kung, as a Roman Catholic theologian, wants to call Jesus Lord, but Lapide wants to call him brother. Now, I could go on. I mean, Mahayana Buddhism itself is very influenced and in turn influences uh, Christian discussion. But the question is, uh, what did Jesus say of himself? Did he say anything about himself? Uh, is he in any way the content of his own preaching? And their opinion is divided. 
so Jimmy Dunn, um, in a very influential book, uh, tells us that Jesus uh, preached uh, the imminence of the kingdom of God uh, and the need to repent because of this imminence. But he did not say anything about himself. C.H. Dodd, on the other hand, and his work has been, uh, what's the word, not rehabilitated, but uh, represented by David Peterson, who used to be principal of Oak Hill Theological College, uh, holds that Jesus uh, was the content of his own kerygma, of his own preaching. And um, I think if I had to choose between Dunn and Dodd, I would choose Dodd, I think, uh, and for four reasons. Uh, one, that Jesus, uh, at the very least, uh, is talking always about his unique relationship with his father. Uh, this is quite new, uh, if uh, you look at the rest of the Bible of someone to have such an intimate sense of a close relationship with God as Father. I mean, we as Christians have become used to it, uh, but if you look at the time before Jesus, this is quite rare, the intimacy. Secondly, Jesus uh, saw himself as a fulfillment of what had gone before. I have come not to destroy, but to fulfill what is in the Torah, what is in the prophets, and so on. He asked people to follow him. You see, not the Torah, not the Bible, uh, not some other prophet, but to follow him. Follow me, and I will make you uh, fishers of men and women, um, he said. And this refers back, of course, in the Older Testament um, to God being a fisher of people. Um, and then, of course, uh, most of all, there is this tendency to forgive people their sins. And this is what astonished uh, those who were around him most of all. Who is this who even forgives sins? Some years ago, uh, the BBC... Um, I produced a, a film, a series of films, actually, on the miracles of Jesus. Uh, now, there are, I think, about, um, what, coming up to three billion Christians in the world, something like that. Uh, but in the wisdom of the BBC, they chose a Muslim to present this. Um, and, and, and at that time, I thought, well, couldn't they find one out, one out of the three billion? Um, but actually, it was Omar Rage, I mean, whom you will know from your screens. In fact, he produced a very reverent series, and I thought in many ways more reverent than some sort of liberal theologian from our universities might have done. Um, and Rage uh, points out in the series that in some of the miracles anyway that Jesus performed, he was claiming to be divine. Um, so, um, the nature miracles, the stilling of the sea and uh, of the storm uh, is a claim to have authority over nature, of course. And that can also be said about healing diseases. 
but also then in the encounters with the demons, with the evil spirits, there is the authority uh, declared over the supernatural. Um, and Draghi also notes uh, the, this business about linking healing with the forgiveness of sins. Uh, so, so far, so good. But Draghi then goes on to say, interestingly enough, uh, that this is why the Quran does not lay emphasis on Jesus' miracles. Now, I found that very strange because my reading of the Quran is that this is precisely what the Quran does. It actually mentions a number of his miracles in the canonical gospels, but also some in the Arabic uh, infancy gospel, uh, which are found only there. Um, but there you are, that's kind of independent testimony to the importance of the miracles. The Sri Lankan theologian Vinod Ramachandra, uh, in his lectures in London a few years ago, uh, depending on earlier work done by people like Ben Witherington III, I think he calls himself, um, you never know whether you're talking about an American or a, or a reigning monarch. Uh, but in this case, it is an American. Um, uh, he talked about, in one of his lectures, of Jesus identifying himself with the wisdom of God, God's wisdom. You remember that wonderful chapter uh, in St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11? The disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and say, are you he who is to come, or should we look for another? Bringing a message from the imprisoned John. And Jesus points out uh, to what is happening uh, because of his work. He says, you know, the, the deaf are hearing, the blind see, the lame are walking, uh, and the poor have the good news uh, preached to them. Uh, so go and tell John. Now, the significant thing about that is that he is referring back to Isaiah chapter 35, which is, of course, about the coming of God. But then, when the disciples of John have returned, he turns to the crowd, and he um, criticizes them for not believing in John, uh, and now not believing in him. Um, and then he goes on to say, but wisdom is justified by her deeds. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. He goes on in the rest of the chapter to identify himself with the wisdom of God as found in the book of Proverbs, with God at the beginning of creation. Uh, and he ends with those words, you remember, which we so often use, take my yoke upon yourselves, for I am meek and humble of heart, which again is a reference back to wisdom uh, in the uh, Old Testament and in the deutero-canonical uh, books. In the very next chapter in St. Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 12, uh, he compares himself to Solomon. He says, the queen of the south, which by the way means Yemen, the queen of the south uh, came to Solomon because of his wisdom. And behold, someone greater than Solomon is here. So whose wisdom is greater than the wisdom of Solomon? I think there is clearly 
a reference here to the, that divine wisdom um, which um, the Older Testament uh, talks about in relation both uh, to creation but also to guidance that we need from time to time in our own living. The favorite way in which Jesus referred to himself is, of course, the term the Son of Man. Uh, and very often, especially in the heyday of liberal Protestantism, this was taken to mean his humanity. And sometimes people still uncritically think of uh, the Son of Man as being the human Jesus. In fact, uh, it was um, Professor Charlie Mole, I suppose there are people here who have been taught by him. Were you taught by him? You weren't taught by him. Oh, there's somebody here. Oh, there, there's uh, Richard was taught by him. Well, you may remember this, Richard. Uh, but it was he who, uh, Bishop Richard, he, uh, it was Charlie Mole, oh, Keith, I suppose you were taught by him, yes, um, who pointed out that uh, the significant thing in this term is the very first word the Son of Man. Not any Son of Man, not a Son of Man, the Son of Man. Ho huyos tu anthropu. Um, young Anglican priest and the angel, who's uh, now an incumbent in Sussex, uh, has pointed out, he's an Aramist, and has pointed out that there is, um, uh, in the, the Aramaic of Jesus' time, uh, the use of a term which is emphatic, which does not mean just any son of man or refer to myself uh, as a human being, uh, but means a particular son of man, that son of man, this son of man. And he says that uh, the evangelists, if they had wanted uh, to translate a son of man, or Jesus referring to himself simply as a human being, it was quite possible for them to have done so in Greek without using the article. Huios um, anthropu. The fact that they did not do so, that they used the article, suggests an emphatic Aramaic behind the use of the Greek. Um, now, uh, that means, of course, that the title is referring to a particular son of man, and the only one we can think of in this situation is the one first mentioned in the book of Daniel. You remember he comes with clouds of glory and dominion and power and authority are given to him. And then, and this section, by the way, of uh, the book of Daniel is in Aramaic, one of the few places of the Older Testament, which is not in Hebrew. It goes on to say, and all nations, I don't know what the nearly infallible version uh, says. Uh, I think it says, all nations shall serve him. Many translations, you've got the nearly infallible version there, have you? <laughs> oh, it is right. Well, um, actually, the, the Aramaic word is only used for worship. All nations shall worship him not just serve him as you would an earthly ruler. What does it say? I think it's 7.14. Um, uh, 
I think labor should be rewarded, shouldn't it? <laughs> Mm. Well, maybe the nearly infallible version is really infallible. <laughs> that is the correct translation. It should be that, worshipped him. So you clearly see that uh, the Son of Man uh, is someone who is divine. And indeed, in later writing, Jewish writing, uh, the Son of Man was certainly seen as a heavenly figure. What about <coughs> another title of Jesus, Christ or Messiah? Now, we know that um, Jesus was remarkably reluctant to accept this title for himself. Uh, and even when the disciples acknowledged him and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Peter said that, uh, he told them not to tell anyone. And the reason that <coughs> is usually given for this is that Jesus um, under understood that at the time the expectation uh, of the Messiah was of a political and even military nature, someone who would deal with the Roman occupation and bring liberation to the Jews. And he did not wish to identify <clears throat> with this reduced notion of the Messiah. Well, I think there's some truth in it. Tom Wright in Jesus and the Victory of God um, <clears throat> tells us that at that time, the expectation of the Messiah was of a human figure. Well, that may be, but um, if we look <laughs> at the Old Testament, you will find uh, a number of strands. So in Ezekiel 34, when God's, uh, God takes over the shepherding uh, of Israel, he says, and to accompany him will be another shepherd. Um, and it is clear that this uh, other shepherd is more than just the human shepherds, who have proved faithless and unworthy. Um, <clears throat> the Psalms, Psalm 2, uh, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. Clearly, this is more than just the Davidic king. This is a universal ruler who is being talked about. Uh, similarly, another uh, very well-known messianic Psalm, Psalm 89, in discussing the coming king, the anointed one talks more, uh, uh, sees the Messiah as more uh, than just uh, a human ruler. But the key ones are Psalm 45, <clears throat> the great messianic psalm. In Pakistan, it is usually sung at weddings. I've often wondered why. Um, but in it, uh, <clears throat> The psalmist declares of the Messiah, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Of course, this is picked up in the letter to the Hebrews, as you will know. Um, Jesus himself, in that rabbinic 
sort of discussion, the give and take, uh, cut and thrust of rabbinic discussion, refers to Psalm 110. You remember when he says, you say that the Messiah is David's son, why then did David call him Lord? When he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand. Um, <clears throat> so, um, Tom Wright himself, in fact, uh, tells us later on that uh, the figure of the Son of Man and that of the Messiah are coalescing later on in Jewish speculative writing to speak of a divine figure who would take one of the thrones that are placed, you remember, in Daniel chapter 7 with the coming of the Ancient of Days. Um, it may well be then that Jesus' reluctance to accept the title Messiah was not just for political or military reasons, but had something to do with the very reductionist way in which thinking about the Messiah had become in his time. What about Son of God? Um, in some ways, uh, the uh, the term Son of God is applied to a whole number uh, of uh, angel, or angelic uh, beings and human beings in the Older Testament, but it is uh, primarily applied to the Davidic uh, king. Um, and yet in Jesus' own usage of this, and I go back to what I said earlier about Jesus' consciousness of his intimacy with his Father, it becomes something quite different. No one knows the Son but the Father. And no one knows the Father but the Son and those to whom the Son reveals the Father. You see, it becomes not just intimate, but uh, the way to knowing the Father is through the Son. Quite recently, uh, a Bible translation in the Middle East uh, seeking to avoid the offense caused to Muslims by the title the Son of God tried to substitute other terms. You know, when, whenever Jesus uses Son of God, they tried to use some other term. But the attempt failed spectacularly because it made the gospel um, more difficult to understand, not more easy. And so the translators went back because this consciousness of being son of his father is so fundamental uh, to Jesus' uh, uh, knowledge uh, of himself and of the work that he had come to do. Um, of course, when we speak of Jesus, we can't just speak of his person. We also have to speak of his work. And Martin Luther was keenly aware of this, of course. Uh, when we speak uh, of his work, um, we need to begin <clears throat> by noting that even in our own times, uh, people have noted the kind of disruption that there has taken place uh, in the human project, whether that is um, in communities, in nations, between nations, uh, and even disruption within ourselves. 
Um, so Hegel, I suppose, one modern writer who was conscious of this, saw this as conflict with nature, uh, conflict uh, between human beings, and conflict with the very ground of our being. Hegel's solution, of course, was the dialectical process uh, whereby thesis and antithesis and synthesis, we could overcome uh, this conflict. Karl Marx um, spoke of the alienation that workers experience from what they produce because it does not belong to them, and also from one another because it's not in the interests of the producers that workers uh, should um, have uh, close relationships with one another. Um, I mean, that critique of Marx still remains uh, relevant uh, for us uh, today in, in some ways. And then Freud, of course, who pointed out the inner cleavage in us, that we are the different aspects of us, the different stages of our psychological development, we are in conflict within ourselves. Uh, Dr. F. W. Dilliston, I don't know if people still read him, but I uh, was very privileged to sit under him, uh, in the Christian doctrine of the atonement, uh, points out that this sense of disruption is not just modern. It, the ancient world knew of it uh, and uh, wanted to get back to what he calls the nostalgia for paradise. So in the overcoming of the, of the disruption, you reattain the uh, state of Eden or of paradise. Uh, Dilliston, in his book, explores three main ancient cultures in how they saw this disruption being overcome uh, of India, of Greece, and of Egypt. And in all cases, the, the, the disruption is overcome by sacrifice, you see whether of animals, or of cereals, or of, uh, or of wine, libations. When we come to the Bible, uh, again, we find that this sense that the disruption is overcome by sacrifice, but the world of the Bible is different from the civilizations that Dilliston has explored. So many of the sacrificial cults of the ancient world were about the restoration of fertility because the disruption is supposed to have affected uh, the earth as well. Um, but in the Bible, uh, we find that there are two main kinds of sacrifice that are mentioned in the Older Testament. There are the communion meals. So the Passover is a communion meal which a family eats together uh, to bring to the present God's deliverance of his people in the past. Uh, and then there are the peace offerings, which also the priests and the people eat together. But then there are the sin offerings. And the interesting thing about the sin offering the, uh, is that the words for the sin offering are the same as for the sin for which they are an offering. Asham and Khatat. Asham and Khatat are the sins, and they are also the offerings for the sin. Now, you may say, what has this got to do with Jesus? I think it has to do a lot with our doctrine of the atonement, because 
For example, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin, he made him to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's a key uh, verse. How it should be translated in the light of this point about sin offering is he who knew no sin, he made to be a sin offering so that we might become the righteousness of God. Casts a wholly new light on how you see uh, the, the atonement. Um, <clears throat> now, um, in the Bible, uh, and the, the rabbis are pointing this out again and again, there is a, an almost a constant tension between the need for sacrifice and a critique of the idea of sacrifice. Um, so while sacrifices of animals and cereals, etc., are prescribed, um, they are at the same time uh, criticized. And uh, what comes to the fore is the idea that it is self-sacrifice that God wants, you see. Uh, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What does the Lord require of you but to love justice, uh, to do kindness, uh, and to walk humbly with your God? Um, when I arrived in church, I went straight off to read the, uh, the portion of the Bible that was open there, and it was open at Psalm 40. Well, Psalm 40 is very important. Sacrifices and burnt offerings you have not desired, but a body you have given me. Behold, I come to do your will, O Lord, uh, he, he, he tells us. And in the letter to the Hebrews, as you know, there is reflection uh, on this um, uh, about how uh, this is fulfilled in the self-offering of Jesus himself. Um, <clears throat> When we come to the, the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, uh, it is, of course, exactly right for us to think of the exemplary aspect of that work. You see, uh, first of all, Jesus... Uh, in his suffering and his dying, shows us the nature of God himself. Um, Therefore, he who shows us God helpless hangs upon the tree, and the nail or crown of thorns tell of what God's love must be, Bill Winston's uh, famous poem. Uh, but it is also exemplary in the sense uh, of... Uh, Jesus uh, telling his disciples to take up their cross and to follow him. And in Sufi poetry particularly, I was reading a Sufi poet this morning, this is again and again emphasized, that the point is to follow the way of the cross, the way of the cross that Jesus took. It's very interesting in, in a faith tradition that denies that the cross actually happened. Um, <clears throat> but... Uh, Whilst the exemplary, the subjective, if you like, is important, I also want to mention uh, <clears throat> tonight uh, three objective aspects of the cross of Jesus. 
So first of all, he is our representative. In the incarnation and in his suffering and dying, Jesus recreates humanity in the way it was always meant to be. Um, there is the beginning of a new Adam, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. John Henry Newman's great hymn. A new Adam, um, the recreation of humanity in terms, uh, once again, of God's purposes and according to God's will. And because he is representative, this is why, of course, he's again and again in the New Testament called the icon of God. Um, he is that image of God which God wants all human beings to be, but an image which was sullied and obscured and damaged or not destroyed uh, by human rebellion and obstinacy and sinfulness. Uh, so he is our representative as the new Adam, uh, as the second Adam. But he's also... Uh, substitute. Now, the substitutionary th theory of the atonement is very controversial, and people will have different views about it. But I want to say uh, how he is substitute in a sense that may, we may all be able to accept. So, he is substitute because he does for us what we are unable, because of the corporate sin in the web of corporate sin in which we find ourselves, unable and also unwilling to do. This is what Luther meant, of course, by the bondage of the, of the will. Unable and unwilling to do. And so, uh, in standing in our place and doing what needed to be done, uh, he is a substitute in turning away God's anger uh, from our rebellion and, and obstinacy. And God's anger, of course, is, as Bishop John Robinson used to say, nothing more uh, than the consequences of our own deeds. But he turns that away, he deals with it, and in that sense we can say he is substitute. In dealing with it, he takes that pain and death, which was, of course, what we deserved, um, and so we don't get it, uh, but we get life from what he has done. The third aspect of an objective uh, view of Christ's suffering and dying is that of Christ as victor. This is known as the classic theory of the atonement because it is found in all the fathers. Uh, St. Athanasius, uh, for example, says that Jesus died for all, and because death could not hold him, his resurrection is a victory for all, you see. Now, this uh, classic theory of the atonement was very important for Martin Luther. He keeps uh, talking about the victory of God against the five tyrants. What are the five tyrants? Um, sin, death, the devil, the law which shows us how we've gone wrong but cannot put us right, and the wrath of God, he says. Uh, Luther, of course, was um, quite happy to use patristic ideas of Jesus being the worm on the hook 
which caught the devil, and um, God making a bargain with, with the devil, uh, Jesus for all the souls in hell, and the devil thought he'd got a good bargain, uh, but it turned out that um, he lost everything because he lost the souls in hell and he couldn't hold Jesus, and so on. I mean, this is all the imagery that was used, and Luther is very rich in the imagery that he uses of the atonement. Um, the resurrection um, of Jesus is, of course, as Athanasius says, a vindication of the obedience of Jesus himself. But it is not only that. It is also about ourselves. Uh, and I think Tom Wright has been entirely right to point out that um, our final destination is not immortality, but resurrection. And so the resurrection of Jesus is the, uh, the advance payment, uh, the promise of our own destiny. But it is also about the universe. It is also about the meaning of the world in which we live and the destiny of the world in which we live. Uh, Oliver O'Donovan uh, has said again and again uh, that as Christians, of course, in our ethical thinking and decision-making, we have to think of creation, of what there is, but we also have to think of resurrection, about what ought to be. You see, we hold, need to hold the two in tension together. If Jesus is Lord at all, they say, he must be Lord of all. If he's Lord at all, he must be Lord of all. And this brings me to the question of the Lordship of Christ in culture. Now, uh, culture can be about the way in which we relate to our environment, how the environment affects us. It can be about human development. Uh, it can be about social meaning that we find for ourselves and our communities. Uh, the Second Vatican Council in its uh, pastoral constitution on the church, Gaudium et Spes, says it is about uh, the ever-refining capacity in human beings. Uh, whatever it may be, we, from uh, the point of view of the gospel, we can affirm um, what is good in culture, uh, but also be able to see what is fallen in culture. Uh, so the fathers of the church uh, use the idea of the logos, God's eternal reason or word that has brought the world into being to speak also of the vital uh, structures of society um, as showing something of God's purposes. Um, both, uh, both need to be, uh, to be held together. Uh, I just want to mention um, Richard Niebuhr and his uh, groundbreaking book just after the Second World War uh, on Christ and culture. You may remember that, where he uh, gave us five ways of thinking of the relationship between Christ and culture. I think some may be worth mentioning. Uh, one is the Christ of culture, 
where uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ has, to some extent, shaped the institutions and the laws and the worldview of a given society. Uh, we could say that Britain uh, has consciously, for many centuries, been that kind of society. Formally speaking, it still is. Whether it continues to be is another matter. But the point about uh, the Christ of culture model is not simply an endorsement of culture. It is also the possibility of critiquing a culture that claims to be uh, one that is uh, Christian in its foundations. Then there is the Christ above culture. That is to say, however well a society may be organized according to the laws of God, according to natural law, according to the Ten Commandments, the most senior judge in Britain wrote to me the other day saying, of course, Bishop, our laws are founded on the Ten Commandments and, our, and on our Lord's summary of them, unquote. Uh, well, I wish her judgments, well, you know who I mean now, uh, also reflected that, but that's another story. Uh, however much a society may be organized in this way, there is always the desire for communion with the, with the divine. So Christ is never exhausted by any culture. There is always that transcendent aspect, the mystery, the beyondness that we must uh, keep before us. Christ against culture. There have been times in the early, in the early history of the church and then, of course, um, in our own day where uh, Jesus stands over and against uh, mere uh, fashion, uh, mere consensus, uh, just going <clears throat> with the crowd and so on. Uh, and it may be that we are moving in this culture today from the Christ of culture to the Christ against culture model. I think this is very important for the churches, the Church of England, for instance, uh, I'm sure uh, people here will agree, has largely worked with the salt model, the pastoral model. You know, salt is invisible, uh, works invisibly, um, to give taste, to preserve, and so on. Uh, and that's, that's fine. Uh, hatching, matching, dispatching, confirming. Uh, but is it enough in our day if the paradigm is changing? So do we need to move from the salt model to the light model, where there are particular spiritual and moral communities um, uh, loyal to the gospel of Jesus, uh, calling people to discipleship of him. Bishop Trevor mentioned discipleship at the very beginning. And then there is Christ who is the transformer of culture. Uh, how Jesus changes cultures um, in um, South America with the spread of Pentecostalism, the people who are coming to faith uh, uh, David Martin, an Anglican sociologist, tells us uh, this is changing society, although it's, it's an unforeseen consequence, but as people come to faith, uh, their family life changes, their life at work uh, changes, and there's a kind of cycle of virtue that is created. Uh, this has also been the case with, the, uh, with work amongst Dalits uh, groups in India, 
uh, where many such groups that were the lowest of the low have now become the most influential in their community because of their coming to Christian faith. Bishop Leslie Newbegin used to talk often about such groups. Well, um, I've run out of time, um, uh, but uh, Christ and culture and Christ uh, and the religions, how uh, religions as a manifestation uh, of culture, what does Jesus have to do with them? And um, I just want to say that uh, on the one hand, uh, there is what uh, um, Dan Strange has called subversive fulfillment, that Jesus fulfills um, the authentic aspirations of everyone, the spiritual, moral, um, whoever they may be. Uh, on the other hand, there is this question that John V. Taylor, our old friend, raised about the transformation of religious traditions themselves in the light of the gospel. And Hinduism is a very interesting example of this, of how Hinduism in the last 250 years of its dialogue with the Christian faith has changed out of all recognition. Now, will this transformation go on? Uh, I just want to end with this. My old teacher, Bishop Kenneth Cragg, who died just short of 100, uh, used to speak to me and to many others uh, of his commitment, his lifelong commitment to commend uh, the gospel according to the logic of Islam. See, commend the gospel according to the logic of Islam. Personally, I came to feel that uh, this was uh, mistaken, that this could never happen. But it was a noble aim. And the, the question is, to what extent can Christ transform not just individuals, but traditions themselves? And maybe that is something that we could discuss. So thank you very much indeed for your patience.